I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. For the next several weeks, we are going to be covering some territory that I think will be helpful but needs to be covered. If you were here last week, we just completed our study in the book of Second Peter, and after several months in our quest, we have finally uh, completed it. So that was a good thing. Um, and while Jeremy is preparing uh, to give his uh, grand legendary exposition from the book of Ecclesiastes as he prepares for that, um, I'm going to try to tie us over until then. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that, say, somewhere near the, the end of August and beginning of September. But for now, what I want to do is maybe cover some issues that have been on my mind for a while. Uh, first or Second Peter, rather, contained a lot regarding the, the Christian, Christians and the church uh, being prepared for, for, for challenging times. Of course, the, the context of First Peter, they were waiting for the Lord Jesus to return in power and in judgment. And so there was a lot of emphasis placed on, yes, growing in grace, but also being on guard against false teachers and false gospels. And so one thing that is immensely helpful is to occasionally return for a time and remind ourselves of the responsibilities we have toward one another as members of the body of Christ. One of the most outstanding instructions in the New Testament is contained in what we call the one another's. The one another's is a phrase that is mentioned perhaps a hundred times in the New Testament, and 59 of those deal with specific imperatives, specific instructions of how we relate to one another as fellow members of the body of Christ. So we are going to hit up some of those texts that talk about uh, practicing the one another's, but we do so from a very important point of view, and the book of Colossians explains that very clearly and very well. And it is from the standpoint of being a new creation in Christ. So if you're not there already, please turn with me to the book of Colossians. And all of what we're going to study today is really founded upon verse 1. There is an operating premise there that's very important to us as church members, and it is this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. So, every instruction that the Apostle Paul gives the church at Colossae, a letter which is to be passed around, is done from the premise, this very premise, that we are no longer who we used to be. We are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are new people as individuals, but we are also, the church composes what Paul describes as a new man. The church itself is a new man. It is a new creation under the administration of the new covenant. And so in this passage, Paul gives a lot of very rich instruction. So we're going to start from this passage when it comes to practicing the one another's. Start at verse 12, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Please follow along with me and I will read to the end of verse 13. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And what I love about this part of Colossians, and there are many other passages in the New Testament similar to it, pertaining to the one another's, is that we don't really have to to reach to find application. Chapter 3 in Colossians is the application. 
Colossians begins in chapter 1 discussing the supremacy of Christ, followed by chapter 2 which discusses the sufficiency of Christ. So you see this thread that Paul is weaving throughout the book of Colossians. Christ is supreme. If He is supreme, He is also sufficient. And if Christ is sufficient, then we come to chapter 3, then we are to be satisfied in Him. So supremacy, sufficiency, and then of course, our response as new persons in the Lord Jesus. We are satisfied in Him. We are satisfied in who He is. We are satisfied even in the work that He does uh, within the life of the church. And yet this really comes to bear when we practice the one another's. Remember that God works with us in real time. He works with people alive in Himself. We are often the means through which God accomplishes this great work that He is doing. He uses us as mouthpieces. So we never want to underestimate that responsibility, but we also never want to put aside this responsibility, and I would say a precious responsibility that we have toward one another. We are, while we're doing, while we're defending the gospel, right? While we're, while we're pounding the pavement and proclaiming Christ, making Him known, we do not do that apart from keeping in mind how we treat each other. In fact, the way we do ministry outside of this place is going to be a direct reflection as to how we regard and treat one another. So never underestimate that. So, with that, the title of this message is called The New Man, His Position and Pursuit. So we'll, beginning, we'll begin by simply covering two things. Two things about the new man. His position, of course, who we are in Christ. And, of course, our pursuit. What are the things that we are after? What are the things that we are trying to cultivate as the Holy Spirit guides us and empowers us in the church body? What are we trying to build up? What are we putting into practice? And this is, it's so clear in a text like this. So we're going to go through this and we'll, we'll move through it hopefully at a steady clip. But we do want to look at these things individually because they all play a vital role in the life of the church. But not only a vital role, but in an inseparable role. You will find that the various things that Paul will mention here do not operate well in isolation. It is hard to show compassion and not be kind. Perhaps impossible. It is difficult to be patient or forgive when you are not humble. So you see how all of these things work together. They build off one another. And so we definitely want to work together to, to see increase in each of these virtues. Just as we learned from the book of 2 Peter, we're always, we're always building Christian virtue one on top of the next, but they work also side by side with each other. So if one suffers, there is a good chance that others will suffer when we try to put them into practice. So let's break this down. The new man, his position and pursuit. The first part of this deals with man's position of grace, and so we identify our position of grace. That is the first key, a necessary key to practicing godliness. If you... if you if you're going to know what to do in Christ, you absolutely have to know who you are in Christ. It starts with your identity. And you identify your position of grace and of course secondly you're going to initiate your pursuit of godliness. So that is how we're going to break down the text this morning. But first, identify your position of grace. So let's look at the text. He says, "So," which typically means, "Well, in light of all of the, in light of all that I have told you." He says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. So, of course, we, we see those three things, being chosen of God, 
being a holy people, being a beloved people. That is the very grounds by which we are able to express these virtues that will come about later in this text. So the lead-in word is so. So we look back to what Paul has just gotten done saying. What Paul has just gotten done saying, if you want to go back a verse or two, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, "...and have put on the new self, or the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal, listen to this, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised." Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So Paul has just gotten rid of those distinctions, and you will never find a more profound expression of getting rid of those distinctions, all those things that divide, whether it's culture or race or even social status, man, woman. Right? The church should be the place where those distinctions that typically end up dividing society are put aside because we recognize that in Christ, There are none of those things. Those things do not matter. What matters is that we are a new creation in Him, and Christ is building us up. I mean, you think about His use here of Scythian. A Scythian would strike fear, perhaps, in the heart of a barbarian. It is said that, if I can, if I can explain this further, it is said that, you know, we look at, we look under our bed for the boogeyman. The boogeyman looks under his bed for Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris looks under his bed for a Scythian. That is how rough Scythians were viewed in that culture. They were not, they were not pleasant people. They were brutal. They were unforgiving. And of course, only in Christ can a Scythian worship alongside a slave. Because we are all one in Christ. We are all equal before Him. We have an equal standing in grace. We have an equal measure of mercy. And so Christ is all And in all, we all have the same renewal. No person is more forgiven than the other. More, no person is in a state of grace than the other. And so, of course, that lends itself to this point here, is that we identify our position of grace. And we do that by first understanding that what formerly divided us when we were, when we were not in Christ are now things that are of no effect. Christ has united us in Himself. And so, each one of these persons, whether Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, whatever. We are all reckoned now as these three things. So pay attention to these. These are very important. Chosen of God, holy, and beloved. You want three very um, refined, very clear descriptions of our position in grace. Look no further than these three things. So let's look at, let's look at them very carefully. Now, again, just a quick pause before we move on. Keep in mind the context here. If you go back in chapter 2, Paul is warning the Colossians against being deceived by a variety of false views toward the gospel. Many things are being presented. We have to say this so we understand the forcefulness of what he's about to say. Paul brings up four primary things that are afflicting the Colossian church. Now normally we can think of one, maybe two. Paul identifies four in this small church. They are philosophy, they are legalism, they are mysticism, where you must seek experiences to have some kind of spiritual enlightenment, and of course, what we would call asceticism or monasticism, that, the, that really the key of, 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 of true knowledge is, is denying yourself. It's, it's separating yourself from society. 
That's how you really become mature. That's how you really live the higher life. And, and of course, we understand that the Christian life is intensely social. And all of those are cheap imitations of the true wisdom and knowledge which is found only in Christ alone. And the, key of, the, the point of bringing this up is that each of these things are struggles for the church because each of these things will try to lay a claim on the Christian. No, you must be a philosopher. No, you must be ascetic. You must deny yourself. No, no, no. What you really need is man-made rules. You need to go back to keeping the things of the law which have passed away in Christ. So you see how this works. You must have these things. And so one of the ways to, to, to fall away from the faith is to see these things as having a legitimate claim on you. And Paul, of course, is saying, well, no, absolutely not. That's not what's going on. God has a claim on you. So each of these three descriptors of being chosen by God and, and holy and beloved are claims that God has on you. So you see two competing claims. And what Paul, what Paul really is able to anchor down here is that God's claim on you is final. His claim on you is absolutely final. There is no legitimate competition. God has a greater claim. It's the difference between a battle trumpet and a war hammer going against a kazoo and a couple of water balloons. That is how we should see the contrasting forcefulness. God lay, once God lays claim on you, His claim is certain and His claim is irrevocable. So think about that. Keep that in mind as we go through these things. Once you've been chosen, you can't be unchosen. Once God has called you holy, you cannot be unholy. Once God has set a saving love and affection on you, it cannot be otherwise. What God calls, He keeps. So rest in that. So, chosen of God. That's the first one. The first identifying marker of our position of grace. This is very simple to understand. To say that we are chosen of God means that we are recipients of God's gracious, gracious choice. He has chosen us. He has enlisted us. He has called us to attention. He has made a claim on us, and now we belong to Him. And of course, we live in such a way to where we honor God's choice of us. This great expression of grace and mercy that was beyond our ability to perceive before we were called to Christ. There is, and there is something really hard to understand about grace. It, it is hard to put into words. And we, don't, and we don't understand it until we have actually been made alive in Christ. And yet even then, it is impossible to exhaust the riches of, of, gra of the grace of God in Christ. Paul describes it to the Ephesians as God having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was all in the mind of God. Before, before we thought we could come and tell God what was good and right and wise, He had already made the decision long before. And there is no way we can possible, possibly undermine this choice of us. And yet that's what God does. And before He chose us, we were too busy being dead. We were too busy being rebels. We have to underscore this because we want to understand the grandeur of grace and also the necessity of humility. The more grace it took, right? The greater the grace, the greater the humility. And the humility comes when we understand that we absolutely had no clue about God's grace. We had no understanding of the gospel. We had no understanding of the lordship of Christ. We just rejected Christ out of hand. That is what spiritually dead people do. There's nothing that we could have done otherwise. But then in His grace and mercy, God calls us to Himself. He calls us out of the grave, as it were, so that we will be alive with Him. And in Ephesians 2, we read that even when we were dead, it's like Paul clarifies, he knows, he knows the objections we make. 
But he says, even when you were dead, He has raised you up. He's raised us up with Christ. He did that Himself when He put His saving affections on us because He chose us, now we live. And I think when we understand that, the proper response isn't to argue against the cruelty of God by the fact that He takes our free will away from us. Here's the fact, guys. We never had it. As soon as Adam fell, we lost free will. We always would will against God. But here's our response. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. Such an eloquent and beautiful statement. Paul even tells us the inner workings of this. That not only has God chosen us, but He's chosen us from the beginning. It was, ne- it was out of your hands. It was never your choice. But also for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith. What does that mean? We are saved by grace through faith. By the working of God. And not in our own work or by our own merit. It is God who chose to reveal the riches of His kindness to you. And the proper response is simply thankfulness. It may be beyond us. We don't, we don't always have to under, understand everything there is to know about God. But we believe Him when He tells us what He wants us to know. And the response is to be thankful. And I think Paul nails this down well in Romans 9.16. He says it does not depend on the man who wills or runs, but on whom? On God who shows mercy. And I think we understand when we're that in that position of grace, we we can acknowledge before one another that none of us is here because we had some kind of insight or some kind of wisdom or some kind of strength or some kind of inherent ability unique from everyone else. Not at all. It's because of God's grace and so practicing the one another's in light of being chosen of God all the more manifest grace in our community. Because what do we have, whether as a church or as individual Christians, what do we have that wasn't given to us? We can lay no claim except Christ and all that He provides for us. So that is what it is to be chosen of God. Here's the second one. We are chosen of God. We are also holy. Holy and beloved. So God does not merely choose us to no effect or without reason. This holiness points to His sovereign purposes that grace will have upon our lives. His choosing of us always entails using us as an instrument to achieve His purposes and to display His glory. So justification, regeneration, that's only the beginning. Now we have a life in Christ to live to His glory. That is the meaning of life. To enjoy God. To glorify Him forever. But here's the first thing that emerges from this, no doubt. Once we have been chosen of Him, once we have been born again, there is this holy activity that takes place. Now, if we have read carefully and listened carefully to the teaching through First and Second Peter, hopefully we have thoroughly mastered this most important doctrine of holiness. That if God has chosen us, He has devoted us to His purpose. He has committed Himself to us for our good and His glory, but He is also setting us apart. He is devoting us to a particular holy purpose. So if God has done all of these things, who are we to say otherwise, whether in word or deed. 
We belong to God. If He chooses us, we belong to Him. So He will devote us to that work which He chooses. And of course, there are several available in terms of how He has gifted us to serve Him and to serve His people. So God has devoted Himself to us. And of course, number two, He dwells with us. We understand that God devotes Himself to us and He dwells with His people as He has always desired. And so, if it follow, if what follows from that is that we devote ourselves now to one another. Remember, what Paul is saying here points to the relational aspect of church life. We are chosen together. We are also holy together. And this issue of holiness being devotion points to what Paul says elsewhere. Devote yourselves to one another in brotherly love. That's what flows out of being chosen. And so, of course, if God devotes Himself to us, we devote ourselves to one another. And if God dwells with us, then how do we dwell? We dwell with one another in unity. That's why the psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Because, of course, sometimes that is not the case. So the psalmist says, that's a good thing. That is, that is how it ought to be amongst the people of God, where there's no division we are, and we are of one accord when it comes to pursuing God's purposes in this world. I think that's very clear. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul, and I think this is from our scripture reading, Paul instructs them to put on the new self. A better translation is the new man. And listen to this. Put on the new man created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. One of the most significant things that undergirds our identity in Christ as new persons is this issue not only of righteousness, but of holiness, where we are able to draw near to God, draw near to the throne of grace, where God dwells with us and we with Him. Remember, this is, this is what characterizes the new heavens and the new earth that, we, that Christians throughout the ages are supposed to be looking forward to. We're looking forward to the manifestation of the new heavens and new earth. And one of the most outstanding characteristics of that is the fact that God comes down to dwell with His people and to dwell with them forever. Never to depart again. That is why the Christian is to have so much hope. And that is why we are supposed to, 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 to see these things as so significant. God's choosing of us. Holiness being God's beloved. They all fit together. And so that's holiness. Devotion and dwelling. So thirdly, we, we are God's beloved. We've talked a lot about this. That God did not merely choose us. right? He did not merely make us a holy people. But God loves us. We are His people whom He has set immense love upon. That is why John says in the book of 1 John, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. God setting, God, the fact that God loves us is one of the things that should be a constant, mind-blowing feature of the Christian's attitude, of the Christian's awareness that he is in Christ, that God loves us and continues to love us. But he says the manner or the quality. How do we best understand the love that God has bestowed on us? It's that we should be called the sons of God, that He would adopt us into His family and reckon all of us as firstborn sons. So even, even you women in the audience, never underestimate the goodness of a statement like that. Yeah, you are a woman, but are you a daughter of the king? 
Well, sure. But the better way of understanding it is that you are a son. God reckons you as a firstborn son. How do I know that? Because both men and women inherit the kingdom of God. So whether male or female, right? Jew or Greek, Scythian, barbarian, in Christ we are all sons of God and inheritors of the promise. And that is a precious thing to be loved like that. I tell you, only in Christianity do we find such privilege, such benefits given to us by a loving God. And once again, friends, it's all by His grace. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 7-8. And, and this will provide clarification lest we believe that somehow we had to merit God's love or that, or that God loved us in and of ourselves. Listen to this. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is one of my, this is one of my favorite descriptions of how God loves us and why God loves us. It says clearly here, God loved you not because of who you are, but God loved you because of who God is. He loves you because He loves you. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good explanation. That, that explanation is sufficient for us. God loves us because it's part of who He is. We should be thrilled that God loves that God didn't love us because of who we are, especially in our rebellion. We are miserable, unlovable creatures. But God's love begins with God and He sets it on us. And doesn't that realization in connection with being devoted by God and God devoting Himself to us and being chosen by God apart from any knowledge or merit of our own sets the groundwork for how we treat one another. And I don't even know if we're going to get to the first one another today, but we're going to work our way there for sure. But these are our foundational, our, our foundation for understanding this, is that we in Christ, together as a church body, can glory in this favored position that we share together as fellow believers. And what unites us is much more than what distinguishes us from one another. And so that is our position of grace. So let's go to the second part. Let's go to this pursuit of godliness. So hopefully, in these three short, these with these three short, brief terms, we understand who we are: chosen of God, holy, beloved. So here's the second part: the pursuit of godliness. And he says this: put on a heart, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you? So we'll start, go, we'll start going down this list. But know what he says here first. He says, put on a heart. Put on a heart, Paul says. This speaks to the Old Testament work of the priest. And it speaks to the necessity of our preparation. We never pursue godliness without first preparing our hearts. And so here it is. This is the way we consecrate ourselves. This is, this is preparing our hearts to do this blessed work of God, in God's garden. It is amazing how much the Christian life is a fashion show. Not in the way we typically think of. But we are told numerous times to put on certain things. These are not merely external vestments. We are called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, and make no provision for the flesh. 
In at least two places in Scripture, we're called to do this. We're called to put on the new man. Because we are new. And so there's a preparation. Well, why do I put on the new man if I already am a new man? Well, listen to what Paul is saying. He's drawing from that from the work of the priest from the Old Testament. The, 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 the priest didn't just waltz into the presence of God. He didn't just march up to the altar willy-nilly without any kind of thought, without any kind of preparation. The same, same stance we have on communion. It is, it is mine and Jeremy's desire that you prepare yourself before coming to the Lord's table. Call that consecration. And so now, this side of the cross, we put on a heart so that we are prepared to do all of these things, to do this precious work with before one another. We put on the armor of God, we put on the new man, we put on the imperishable, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. All these things we do in preparation to serve one another. Right? We put away all these things that are not of God. We put away idolatry, we put away licentiousness, we put away greed, covetousness, put away wrath and anger, all of these things that are contrary to the work of the Spirit. We put them away and we put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and all that Paul mentions. Of course, these are primarily internal disposition. But whereas our life apart from Christ, they led us to sin uncontrollably, now they are dispositions that are evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. Instead of resisting Him, instead of rejecting God's Word, instead of being selfish and enslaved to fleshly passions, now we are slaves of Christ and we do what He desires us to do. But keep in mind, friends, in this, in this particular passage, there is much more going on here than a change in external behavior. Sometimes we think of repentance as that. Sometimes we unfortunately think of our life in Christ as just that. That it is merely an exchange of behavior. That it's behavior modification. And that is where the believer, unfortunately, can run aground. And I think we can burden ourselves with unnecessary burdens rather than relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. An internal change must take place before we can put on any of these things. It's not behavior modification, it's heart transformation. Right? In the same way, we're not dealing with the rehabilitation of the man, we are dealing with the resurrection of the man. We're talking about power here. Real spiritual power. We can't talk about the, the Christian's clothing without mentioning Luke 24. Listen to this, verse 49. He says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, the same Holy Spirit that equipped the apostles to preach the Gospel is the same Holy Spirit who equips us with power to serve and love one another. It's the same Holy Spirit that imparts life to formerly dead men so that we can do that life-giving work before one another. So it's much more than behavioral modification. We are talking about resurrection. We are talking about transformation. So what I am saying is that it is totally natural or supernatural for the one who is alive in the Lord Jesus to see these things emerge. If the Holy Spirit is truly operational in each of you, you will manifest these things. And you won't see them as optional. And you won't see them as this crushing burden. And you won't see these things as opportunities to avoid. If you are alive in Christ, you will be drawn to put these things on display. You will be drawn to practice the one another's. You will want to be compassionate, kind, and humble. Gentle and patient. It is a contradiction for the Christian to have an aversion toward these things. Or to see them as 
this unfortunate interruption to all the other awesome things you're doing with your life. No, this is the Christian life. And so when Paul says, put on a heart, there is an urgency to it. He is saying, waste no time. Do this yesterday. I hope this is already true of you. That is urgency. We have to be prepared to serve one another. But remember, this is a this is an internal work. First, we must have this heart attitude toward one another before it is going to manifest itself externally. As one philosopher said, you can't fake the funk. And we especially shouldn't do it when it comes to Christian virtue. Especially these things. So let's look at them. The first is compassion. And I think it's fitting that compassion is the first one mentioned here. And one of the reasons for this is that compassion is the term that describes God more than any other term in Scripture. That might come as a surprise to you. We might think, oh, righteousness, holiness, justice, goodness. No, it's compassion. So if it is true of God, if we are His people, how, how, how should it then apply to us? We should be compassionate people. Have a compassionate heart and disposition to demonstrate that Christ is creating this character within us. This term for compassion refers to the inward parts. Yes, it is an emotional word. It reflects on the affections that we have toward one another. It refers to the inward parts. It could refer to the lungs, the heart, the liver, the spleen, the guts, right? When we show compassion, our, our guts are involved. The inner man is involved. So it's taking physical imagery and applying it to our spiritual attitudes. These are what we would call our vital organs. We can't live without them. And in the same way, the church can't live without compassion. One of the ways we are able to understand compassion is even the, 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 the root that composes this word, compassion, which means to suffer with. To show compassion means very clearly that we are willing to suffer with other people. We are willing to bear their burdens, to weep with those who weep, right? It's not just walking by someone and saying, oh, tisk tisk." You're, you're in such a tough situation. You know, I, I really feel for you, but I'm not going to lift a finger to actually help you. That is not compassion. Compassion does point to a willingness to give aid, to come to the help of someone. Even in, even in the mind of David, there's, there's a really interesting episode in his life that actually displays the, the weight and importance of compassion in, in, an, in a true Israelite. In, in 2 Samuel 12, and this is when the prophet Nathan is actually confronting David on his sin of adultery and uh, murder and lying and deceit and all the other things that characterize that. And remember, he gives that parable of the lamb. The poor man has the lamb, then his neighbor, who's the rich man, has a visitor from out of town, and instead of taking from his own flock, he goes and he steals the lamb of the poor man, and then he cooks the lamb and serves it to his guests. Now we say, wow, that's a pretty awful thing to do. But listen, listen to David's reaction. It says, then David's anger burned greatly against the man, this man in this parable. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. You realize the law didn't actually prescribe death for that kind of, for that kind of action. But man, David here is on fire. He's incensed. Who would do such a thing? And then, of course, Nathan says, you are the man. You're this guy. That by your own lips, you should be put to death. So that's how important compassion was. But, but going on to make this point, David says, 
he must make also restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. He, he, he showed a loveless heart toward his neighbor. His neighbor who only had one lamb and yet he had, he had great flocks, plenty of property to provide for himself and his guests, and yet he stole from his neighbor. That is the, that is the weight of compassion. That we ought to have compassion with one another, to suffer with one another, to weep with those who weep, to do more than feel sorry for the person, but to, like Christ, identify with one another's sorrow. Even, even Isaiah 53 says that very thing, right? He bore our sorrows. He bore our grief. He was a man acquaint, a man of sorrows and a, acquainted with grief. He knew what it's like to be human. Jesus, above all, understands human suffering. And if we are in Christ, we ought to sympathize also with the suffering of others and to draw near them and to meet their needs. In Matthew 14, 14, we read this, that Jesus went ashore, saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. See, his compassion was manifested in his healing touch. And if God should draw so near to us to heal our infirmities, to to heal us from our sins, so should we, with the same heart and compassion of Christ, draw near to each other and meet one another's needs. James says this, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Right? Have we been in that situation before? Man, I'm really sorry you're in this position. I'm not going to do anything to help you, but I'm just going to tell you that I really feel for you. Like, when was the last time? And this is, this is in the context of a brother or sister. This is someone you do life with. This is a fellow member of the body of Christ. And that's why James is so emphatic. Can that, say, can that kind of faith save such a person? No, that's an absolute sham. Because there's no good works backing it up. That's not real compassion. Yeah, yeah. You do you, I'll do me. You know, I'm sure you'll be all right. Especially when we have the resources available to come to that person's assistance. How can, we, how can the love of God be in us if we close our hearts against that person? So when we think of compassion, think upon the compassion that Jesus shows to unworthy sinners and how He condescends and brings us healing and strength and forgiveness. Go and do in like manner. So following compassion would be kindness. If we see compassion or even mercy as, 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 as the arm, kindness would be the, the gift itself. So kindness flows out of compassion, whereas compassion is that disposition and willingness to meet a need. Kindness is the actual deed done. It is the meeting of that need. It is, it is the merciful act that is done for the benefit of a person. It often characterizes God who shows mercy and gives us grace instead of the wrath and justice that we have so rightly earned. See, it is the kindness of God that quells that. It is the kindness of God that it is showed, that is shown in his patience toward sinners. Rather than being pleasant or benign, inert, not willing to rock the boat. So we've talked about this before in our study of Galatians. Many, many moons ago, we talked about the great heresy of niceness. That being nice has somehow supplanted and replaced, and really it acts as a forgery of kindness. Because niceness is just pleasant. It's so, so passive, right? It doesn't confront anything. 
because it's always concerned about keeping the peace, right? Don't, don't rock the boat. Don't make a disturbance. Don't, don't raise a stink. And yet kindness is the very thing that goes in and meets the needs of others. It's willing to rock the boat. It's willing to cause a disturbance. It's willing to be truthful. I mean, one of the, again, the, the, the ugliest truths, truth about us is that we're born in Adam, we're born into sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. And it is ki- the kindness of God that actually reveals that ugly, awful truth about us, and yet demonstrates the patience and mercy of God toward us so that we are drawn to repent. We're drawn to believe the gospel and commit our lives to Him. So kindness actually meets the need. So be kind, not nice. Easy application. Here's the third one. We have heart of compassion. We have kindness. And then, of course, we have humility. We've talked quite a bit about humility. That, that lost virtue. Really, love being the king. Humility being the queen of Christian virtue. And we find that every sin, every act of rebellion committed against God is an absolute act of pride. It rejects humility. can be linked to a lack of it. And whereas compassion and kindness have a lot more to do with what we call the guts, right? The heart of the matter. Humility has a lot more to do, I believe, with the mind. Because you can, you can assess whether one has humility by, by, a, by looking at what they think of themselves. Humility really is a lowliness of mind. And it's not just thinking less of yourself, it's thinking less about yourself. And of course, thinking of others. Humility really seeks to be, to make provision for kindness. You are not going to be interested in meeting the needs of others if all you're ever doing is thinking about yourself or if you see meeting the needs of others as an opportunity to parade yourself. That is not humility either. But humility is that attitude of mind that puts down arrogance, that puts down that self-promoting pompous attitude that is so characteristic today of a society that is absolutely head over heels in love with itself. Humility seeks to show God's love. It's really interesting is that humility in this Greco-Roman culture is never mentioned as a virtue. Wrap your head around that. Humility is something that is just peculiar to Christianity. But Paul sees it as a great virtue, a necessary virtue. Necessary to put into practice. Interesting quote here from Frank Lloyd Wright, the great architect. He said this, I feel coming on a strange disease. Humility. I mean, what a statement. But that is how much of society even today views humility. A disease, a strange disease, a unwelcome interloper in our quest for greatness and notoriety. Despised in Paul's day, it is despised every bit today as well. Just as it was difficult to find someone praising this virtue in Greco-Roman times, so it is equally difficult to see the virtue praised today. Listen to what one commentator says about humility. It is the thing which lies in the saints entertaining mean thoughts of themselves, not mean like an unkind, uh, looking upon themselves as the chief of sinners and less than the least of all saints, as inferior to others in knowledge, experience, gifts, and graces, and esteeming others better than themselves and ascribing all that they have and are to the grace of God. That is what the humble mind says. That is what the humble man says. It is all of grace. And I am no better than anyone here. No matter what I think I know, no matter what I think I've been through, it is all of grace. Continue this quote. In doing works of mercy and righteousness without ostentation, without showboating, 
and boasting of them or depending on them, owning that when they have done all they can, they are but unprofitable servants. That's why it was St. Augustine who said, humility is the foundation of all other virtues, hence in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. Kind of the same thing as love. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I speak the tongues of men of angels, if I give my body the flames, and on and on and on. But I don't have love. I am nothing, it profits me nothing. Same thing with humility, same line of reasoning. If you do all of these things, all of these apparent acts of goodness, but you do not do them with a humble heart dependent upon God's grace, it's just spiritual showboating. You just look like a braggart. That's why I think we find such a lesson in even the life of Christ. Right? Philippians 2 says it all. If you want to turn there really quickly, great passage to hold near to us because it is the, the, the great example of humility. Where Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, so there we have humility of mind. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude. What attitude? That attitude of humility, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. When was the last time you emptied yourself to live sacrificially for someone? And here is the Son of God, God in human flesh, who emptied himself from all those heavenly privileges and prerogatives, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is why it is we, we need to tread carefully when we want to claim humility for ourselves. Because Christ's example of humility is so much greater. We have not understood humility until we have looked to Christ's sacrificial act on the cross for God's glory and for our good. This very thing in which he, raised, he was raised up to be proclaimed Lord. We do well to learn from this. We do well to see that as our supreme example. How much time we got here? A few more minutes. Let's go to this next one. Oh, really quick with humility. A couple things to keep in mind. How do we know when we're humble? Here's one thing to keep in mind. One is you stop acting like you're better than everyone else and that people aren't worth your time. I think that's pretty... We, we can assess that visually because it's an attitude. Secondly, you will find that if you are humble, you will be teachable. You will be flexible. You will be subject ultimately to Scripture. And you will have a willingness to change your mind. I love the way C.S. Lewis described the humble man. Described him as a, as a pleasant chap who was interested in what you had to say. <laughs> That's a good description of a humble person. He's interested in what you have to say. He doesn't think he knows everything. He doesn't have to be the paragon of all knowledge and wisdom. And he's, he's flexible, interested in changing his mind. Th think about that as that relates to how you interact with believers and unbelievers alike. Do you display humility? Do you display an interest in others? And are you willing to confess that you're wrong if you are indeed wrong about something? We need more people like that in the church who have that mindset. We also have gentleness, sometimes translated meekness. We could call this the sentry, the guardian of humility. That is, the humble Christian is a gentle Christian. It doesn't mean that this Christian is somehow a wuss or spineless, right? But there's no courage. Sometimes we think of meekness as 
weakness. But what meekness does is set itself in contrast with what we know as a harsh and abrasive personality. There is definitely a softness to gentleness in the way we act and in the way we speak. It's one of the things that that was in Jesus' invitation to the weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Here is the the creator of the universe who with the word could uncreate and he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. In me, find rest for your soul. Take stock of that in your daily interaction. Are you soft toward people or are you harsh and abrasive and unforgiving? Or like humility, is there a willingness to listen? Is there a, I think one thing about gentleness is what it doesn't do, right? Scripture tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Built within gentleness is a refusal to stir up anger, right? to be abrasive, to know, to know what goads a person to anger and to not do that. Right? It, gentleness is power under control. Going back to Jesus, right? the creator of the universe and yet could hold a child in his lap. That's power under control. An elephant being able to lift a log or to lift a tiny blade of grass. Gentleness, strength under control. And so as we are God's holy people, beloved, chosen, so are we called to be gentle. Here's the last one for this morning. It is patience, another long-lost virtue, especially since we're so used to getting everything we want at the click of a button. Even next day shipping seems slow. Because we just, we want things streaming now. We want them here and we want them now. And anything less is unacceptable. We struggle with patience when the world seemingly is at our fingertips. The New King James translation uh, translates patience as long suffering. We hate long, we hate suffering. And yet here it is. It could be understood as endurance in the face of suffering or personal offense. Remember we read in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, right? Love is patient. It endures, right? It overlooks an offense. It is a kind of self-restraint that refuses to, uh, to retaliate when we've been wronged. And that's one of the greatest challenges today, right? Believer and unbeliever alike struggle with this. I think the first thing that comes to mind when someone has wronged us, first there's sadness, then there's anger, and then there's how can we get even with this person? How can we demonstrate to this person that they can't do that to us and get away with it? That is something in the church that must be rooted out, my friend. This desire for retribution. Patience, once again, is an attitude of the heart. And it means more than just to wait, to just pass time, right? You ever, parents in here, you ever shouted at your kid or raised your voice to them and said, I've been patient and I'm not going to be patient anymore. Right? They, you know, they forgot to pick up their room one too many times. They didn't do your chores. You know, men, maybe, maybe your wife, Maybe your wife said something sarcastic and disrespectful to you. And you said, woman, I'm not going to take it anymore. How dare you speak to me in such a tone? I don't like your tone. I've been patient. I'm not going to be silent anymore. I'm going to say something. Now, now listen to yourself. When you say those things, can you really say you've been patient? Or were you just a powder keg waiting to explode and you couldn't take it anymore? And now you want your pound of flesh giveaway. That's not patience. It's not patience. And yet, patience, positively, again, is not just waiting. It's not just, 
I mean, especially since we're so prone to whine, even when someone looks at us the wrong way. What, what does patience look like? Now, let's, we want, if we want to know what something like this looks like, who do we go to first? We go to God, right? God is patient. We learned about that a lot in 2 Peter, right? He's patient with us. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. He's patient with you, desiring that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a saving work in that. There's not just a withholding of wrath, but there positively, there is a desire for God's saving work to be made manifest in one another's lives. That's how we practice the one another's here. Seeing God as our ultimate example of patience, what we do in the work of patience then is that we submit to God's timeline of pruning and growing a person. Remember, with every Christian, God is conforming that person to the image of His Son. That is a labor of love. It takes a lifetime to achieve. Some are going to grow more efficiently than others. But every Christian will grow if the Holy Spirit is truly there. And so what does this look like? Well, in walking with one another in brotherly love, we endure, we overlook offenses, we are not offended easily, and what we do is we acknowledge that work of God within a person's heart. It is a saving work especially when it comes to sanctification. Right? Patience acknowledges a work being done. Right? And so rather than just waiting for the person to screw up the next time and show them the wrath, we are willing to bear their burdens. We are giving, we are giving way to offense and acknowledging that God is at work in them. And get this, you show joy over the progress they make. That is patience in action. It's not just withholding wrath. It's positively being joyous over the growth that God is faithfully doing within them. It's a hard one. But then, of course, we always return to how God sees us, that He was patient toward us. How much more should we be patient toward one another? Maybe some of you are sitting here today and think, why, oh, why does He have to talk about patience? I haven't been very patient this week. I've been, I've been grumpy, right? <laughs> I've been abrasive. I've been unloving in my speech and maybe in my actions, but this, this is what we must talk about. This is patience. And if we truly are patient, then we will be supportive of the work that God is doing in the lives of each of us. Right? That's why it's so important to be committed to a local church for the long term. We walk with one another in love. We walk with one another with patience. And as long as we are together, as long as we are a part of Emmaus Road, may that virtue be exemplary, that we're not a bunch of impatient people waiting to strike toward those who are struggling in their spiritual growth, right? As God has shown us patience, as God has shown us kindness and compassion, as we have seen the humility of Christ to save us, as God has been gentle toward us, so must we also be toward one another. I mean, we really could spend a sermon on each of these, but just by way of reminder, that we are meant to cultivate these things. We are to put them on display because they are consistent with being chosen of God, with being God's holy people, and with being God's beloved people. May we not lack in any of these things, but always be encouraging one another to see these things real in our lives and to be a growing reality. So with that, we will talk about, and this was all planned. I actually got through my material today. Um, I may humbly say, but uh, next week, be praying about this because one of the one of the 
most difficult things, even, even within the Christian community, is forgiveness. And we're going to talk about forgiveness as a standalone uh, practice within the church. Um, I tell you, forgiveness is one of those things that's very difficult. And we definitely want the Lord to uh, prepare our hearts to, to, to hear that. Because it is forgiveness that I think distinguishes between who belongs to God and who does not. And we'll uh, talk about that in depth next Lord's Day. But for now, uh, a lot to go through today, but let's commit these things to prayer. Bow your heads, please. Father, thank you again uh, for your love and kindness to us. We thank you, God, that we can stand here positionally as those who have been chosen by you, who are holy, and we are your beloved. And, and what a great what a great privilege, what a great grace we have knowing that we are those things and that we are those things for all time because you have declared it so. Lord, we are yours and we are, and we are so thankful for that. And Lord, we, we also find that even though we are those things, um, certain virtues flow out of it, certain de- defining characteristics, things that we pursue so that we are more like you. A lot to think about today, a lot to, a lot to go through, but Lord, we desire these things to be characteristic of us. Not only externally, we don't want to put on a charade. We don't want to, we don't want to fake it till we make it. But we want these things to truly be characteristic of our hearts because we are a new man in Christ. And if we, have, if we are a new man, we, are, we have a new heart. And I do pray, Lord, that, that we would have compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Things that are, that are hard fought and yet... I do pray that we would start seeing them as an abundant gift of your grace. That you, Father, desire these things uh, to be uh, prevalent in us. And if you want that, Lord, we want that as well. So please help us. Please equip us. Continue to strengthen us so that we would pursue these things and put them on display. That our church would be united in them. That that our church would be strong as we walk together, as we continue to, to see your kingdom unfold and to, to see the reign of Christ present in every area of life, Lord, we can't do it without you. Um, so we do humble ourselves before you today and reaffirm that anything we have is because you have given it to us. So please help us to understand that and help us to encourage one another with that as we build each other up in the most holy. Help us also to prepare our hearts next time for forgiveness. We want to be a forgiving people and not those who who withhold a grace from one another. So with that, Lord, we commit all these things to you as well as the rest of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.